Welcome to Millennial 738. I'm Andrew. I'm Maura. And I'm Pamela. On today's episode, Laura's got a SCOTUS term preview. Pam will talk about Big Brother, who crowned their first Black winner. And we'll talk more about Sunday Scaries, including how to help tamp those down, because we were getting at it a little bit last week, and uh, I wanted to spend more time on that. But first of all, how are you all doing after today's great blackout? Uh, I didn't even realize it was happening, to be completely honest with you, until I started seeing other people talking about it. You're so lucky. Um, so lucky. Because, I mean, haven't we all talked on the show before about how none of us even have the Facebook app on our phone anymore, or we just don't check it that frequently? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Andrew's like, sure, I wasn't in withdrawal. But if you're an Instagram user, I can see how this would have affected you. I will say I pulled up my Instagram at one point and I got the notification, this feed cannot be updated. I still hadn't heard the news as of this point. So I was just like, oh, my internet must be fucked up or something. I don't know. <laughs> and you went on when you're, with your life. I did. I was like, well, okay. I mean, I don't really use um, Facebook very much. I, the most I do on there is check in to see what y'all are saying in the um, millennial uh, Facebook group. So I was fine. I didn't even notice until... I hopped onto Twitter and saw that everybody was tweeting about so many Instagram, jokes. Facebook, and WhatsApp being down. Yeah. And then like an idiot, like I just couldn't take the word of, you know, 90% of Twitter. I had to go check to see. <laughs> Is it happening to me too? For myself. I mean, I knew it was it, it would happen to me. I don't I know I'm not like, you know, uh safe <laughs> from yeah. mass outages, but I still just had to go see. Facebook and Instagram were down for about six hours today. So Laura's like, I don't have the Facebook app anymore. I checked fa- Instagram once and gave up. I was like, so I knew it was down since basically the start of it, because I'm always on Twitter. I kept instinctively loading up the website and the app apps, even though I knew that I couldn't get onto it. And it just shows the addiction that I have. And yeah, I did end up. So I had disabled Facebook notifications a while back, but I did end up bringing this back. (laughs) I just I just have to own it. Like, I can't quit you. I'm sorry. I tried, but it didn't work. Can we get that slow, sad guitar rift from Brokeback Mountain? (laughs) I can't quit you, Facebook. (laughs) But I have to say on Twitter, everybody was making Facebook jokes and some of them were funny. But some people were like, can Facebook just not come back? And people say this every time it goes down. And to them, I say, can you just delete your Facebook account? You can make it not come back for you forever. Just delete your Facebook account. One person took me up on that challenge, by the way. Somebody that I know. So really, I would. Yeah, really. They They tweeted me. And uh, they were like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to do it. And this person did tweet what I was complaining about earlier in the day. So he probably felt seen. But I I would delete Facebook if it weren't for um, groups and marketplace. I really like this. Everything else I can do without. Yeah, I only keep it for the millennial Facebook group at this point. Yeah, Um, I do have to say, I wonder, and I've been worried since I found out about the news about... um, anti-vaxxers and those others who do all of their research through Facebook. I just wonder how they've been coping today. (laughs) Thoughts and prayers. I did see a good tweet about that. (laughs) Damn it. Brianna Wu. Crap. Facebook is down. Does anyone know where else I can find memes comparing vaccination to the Holocaust? (laughs) That is beautiful. That is that's way better than I could have put it. No, yours was good, too. Yours was good, too. (laughs) So also a little serious personal update. Last week, some of you may have seen that the site I founded uh, with one of my friends, Richard, uh, we founded it 10 years ago, Hypable, has closed. This was a really hard decision, probably one of uh, one of the hardest decisions I've made in my life, but it was the right decision. And I thought we could just talk about it for a couple minutes. Internet media is a very tough business. We see sites closing a lot, people losing their jobs. It sucks. It's just all really tough. And we at Hypable, we could have really tried to buckle down and try to grow the site in the ways that we would need to, um, to shore it up for the long term by maybe like bringing in some outside help who would want huge salaries and then they would want to change how we operate the site. It just wouldn't be Hypable anymore. And there was no guarantee that even all of that would work out. And then at the same time, speaking personally, 
I've now been in entertainment websites for 20 years. If we go back to my original Harry Potter fan site, harrypottershouse.com. And frankly, I'm just ready to move on. I've been very lucky that podcasting and consulting on podcasting and Patreon has become really successful for me in the past few years. I've just been kind of going at it myself and it's worked out really well. So it was just time for me to focus solely on that. A little over 10 years ago, I dropped out of college actually to pursue Hypeable and it was scary as hell, but it ended up being the right choice. And I'm so freaking proud of Hypeable. Pam's been involved for years. Um, I dreaded telling all the staff like that was also one of the hardest things I've ever done. I I gave everybody three months notice because I couldn't live with myself taking the site away from everybody. Um, But I am so incredibly proud of it. There's so many stories we could tell and we won't do much of that this time. But, um, you know, here I am now taking another scary leap and I just have to hope that it'll all work out. And I've been trying to think of what to say to the millennial audience so you can all take away something from this other than me just talking about myself for a couple minutes. And what I want to say is that if you are or ever will be on the fence about taking a leap of faith and just jumping into the unknown, just go for it. And I personally will strongly support that choice you're making because I've done it a couple times and I speak from experience when I say it can work out and it can be very, very rewarding if you do. So that's what I have to say about that. Pam, I don't know if you want to get anything in because, like I said, you've been involved with Hypable for a few years, at least more than that. Oh, my gosh. So, um, so many years. I don't think, well, definitely not from the beginning, but probably damn near close. Um, I just really, I said this on Twitter, too, so you can, like, go read more extended thoughts. But I just think that, like, when you're in this landscape, if you're not in this landscape, it's really hard to grasp just how hard it is to find you know, a place that allows you to really dig deep on things that you're passionate about that you're really like that you really want to write about. And it's so funny, because when I was when I started writing for Hypable, I was studying journalism. And that should have been where I cut my teeth with like what I potentially wanted to write about once I graduated. And I just received like so much pushback from the people that were in charge at the time at my school, Mm. the school, the student publications were like not receptive to like any of the stuff that I wanted to cover. And nobody was uh, working really in online media remotely. Um, And so I just got sick of it. And I just like, was like, I'm going to do my my general ed and get it out of the way. I'm going to do my one semester of student publication, then I'm going to seek out other stuff. And like, I don't know if I would have been able to go on to write for like some other larger publications if I hadn't had any bylines on, you know, Hypable or even like before that Twilight Source. I don't think like when we started working together, I ever thought that it it was going to be for as long as it has been and it is. So, I mean, I just think that that's really cool. Yeah. It's something to be proud of. So, yeah, absolutely. I am so proud of Hypable and one of the things I'm proudest of is that, to your point, Hypable and these other sites, MuggleNet, Twilight Source, they have actually helped people grow in their careers and get other jobs, like writing in television for big network shows and writing for other sites. That is mind-blowing to me. We're just little old Hypable sitting here in our own bedrooms, you know, just typing away the news and stuff and it's led to incredible opportunities for people. So that's one of the things I'm most proud of. I mean, I hardly ever like, I don't know, I feel like it's bragging. So I hardly ever bring up, you know, like my bylines or anything like that. Uh, But, you know, just to like show you guys that like it hard work and passion can lead to places like I didn't go to a fancy school. I went to a public CSU. Um, and I didn't do a lot of like the internships that people were pushing me towards at school. I went to write for, you know, Hypable instead and like hang out with my friends and talk about things I was passionate about. I've written for, you know, Billboard because of Hypable, um, Hollywood Reporter, Entertainment Weekly, People's Choice. I have like bylines all over the internet at, um, sites that are like arguably way more recognizable. And it's not always, you know, the big name. Um, Sometimes it really 
um, can be advantageous to work for a smaller site or even like, you know, start off smaller. And that's the advice that I give to anybody that's trying to break into my field as well. It's just like find a place to write that's really going to appreciate what you have to bring to the table to start. And then like the bigger stuff will come later. So, yeah, well said. Very well said. Yeah. I'm really proud of what both of you accomplished through Hypable. And I kind of want to ask a question that maybe some folks at home are wondering right now. And and it's directed towards both of you, Andrew, for making the decision 10 years ago to take the plunge with Hypable and making the decision now to let it go. And then Pam also, some would probably argue that making the decision to write for a smaller site is in and of itself kind of a risk. It's kind of like working at a startup a little bit. How did you both decide in these various instances to jump into the unknown? What was the thing that really motivated you to take that step? Because some people might be wondering, you know, has there been a sign? Am I seeing a sign right now that I need to do something similar? How will I know? I think for me, I've just felt increasingly confident about making the decision because nothing in the future and specifically in my situation or in general is promised. But over the past couple of years, because of getting more involved with podcasting work and Patreon work, I felt more confident in making a decision like this. I've actually kind of it's kind of like. I've brought up my coming out experience. I felt better and better about coming out to people as I, I as I had more people on my side who I already had come out to. Similarly with this, because I was building up this other hustle, I felt more confident to make that leap. And then of course, you know, to be clear, this isn't just all about me. It's really tough to to run a site like this and even a couple of years ago before the consulting stuff, I was absolutely terrified about the day where Hypable would end because I didn't have a sort of backup plan. And now we've reached a point where we do need to end Hypable. And luckily, thank God, I do have a backup plan. So in terms of timing for me, it, it has worked out. But again, it's just s- sort of slowly building up that confidence. So I kind of look at this um, very similarly to one of my favorite questions to ask in almost any interview. And that question is, um, when did this thing that you do now switch from being something that you want to do and turn into something that you felt like you had to do? And so for me, that was, you know, writing about music, TV, I just really wanted to do it. And it felt like it was something that I had to do or I wasn't going to be, you know, pursuing something that I I just like wanted with my whole heart. And so I had to figure out how to do that. And um, it was lucky that that epiphany came when I was able to afford to work for free. I know a lot of people can't do that. But even if like, you know, say you're trying to break into journalism or something like if you can even like you know, afford to make writing your hobby until you figure out how to make it, um, you know, your full time job, then I think it's worth it because it's not going to seem like work. It's just going to seem like fun. Um, And it's really easy to say that um, looking back, it is probably a lot harder for somebody starting out, say, around our age to do that. Um, But I would think that at this point, if you're trying to um, write about pop culture or anything like that, and you're looking to maybe write for a smaller site, it would it would be starting off as something like a hobby. So if you think about it that way, um, it's just like any other hobby. It's just like going to play golf, except, you know, you're writing about something that you're really excited about. Thank you both. Good question, Laura. We've received a lot of heartwarming comments, including right now in the Discord, and it's all meant a lot. Just please know that it's it's been really great to see the outpouring of support and the appreciation for Hypable. And Jemima brought up a point that I would agree with. Um, you can tell that the articles on Hypable are written by people who actually care about what they're writing. And it, she says it's one of the best entertainment sites out there, TBH, which we really appreciate. And that's something we've always been adamant about from the get go. It's like, we don't want you as a writer to be writing about anything unless you love it. And that always showed through in the work. I mentioned that on my Instagram as well. So 
yeah, you know, there's I'm sure some stories will come up in the months and years ahead on Millennial. As I recall certain things, I can maybe bitch a little more than I normally do about certain yeah, we, things. We were talking about a few things on Friday when you made the announcement. Yeah. But yeah, this is not the time for that stuff. Yeah. Now that I'll, now that I'm personally free of like dealing with publicists and shit, I'll probably complain about that more. I mean, Hollywood really is brutal and we'll talk about that i guess in the future but thanks everybody again uh for the support over the years really whether or not you visited hypable once or many times we really really appreciate it you all helped hypable become the site it was and yeah we'll just leave it at that for now well thanks for sharing that y'all i know it's Mm -hmm. a really vulnerable decision to make and then to publicize and speak about sort of like your internal machinations around making that decision. So I know a lot of folks at home appreciate hearing about that experience. Who knows? We probably have a lot of listeners who are thinking about launching their own thing now. That's yeah, kind of the hallmark of, you know, any major economic downturn. I mean, you tend to see a lot of new small businesses coming out of that as people start bouncing back. Um, so fingers crossed on that. And mm-hmm. if any of y'all at home are starting something new, email us. Let us know what it is. We want to hear about it. Yeah, absolutely. And we support you. <laughs> Sorry, I'm reading the Discord. <laughs> Somebody's asking. I was trying not to laugh too because it was getting so hard. <laughs> somebody, somebody uh, said, "Well, we ever have a hypeable suck?" So, like, we've done Muggle suck on After Dark, where we gossip about MuggleNet. So, uh, Catherine said, "Will there ever be a hypeable suck?" And yes, I have thought about that. I was like, "Now we got to do hypa suck." <laughs> not because of me, though. <laughs> Or maybe a week I'm off, Pam can gossip about me. <laughs> I was going to say, you're going to wait for a week when I'm off so you can gossip about me. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I don't think we would gossip about anybody on staff, at least not very specifically, like we have with MuggleNet. Um, <laughs> no, but, but there's I'd other stories. stories. Yeah, for sure. But yeah. All right. Well, we did have a little bit of an update on our Gabby Petito conversation from a couple of weeks ago, as well as some feedback. We did get quite a deal of feedback from folks on this topic. And we got a particularly great piece of feedback from friend of the show, Dr. Sarah Steelman. She is a licensed marriage and family therapist and has been on the show before. And she actually wrote in with her take based on the circles that she's in. So she says, Because I'm in a lot of therapist circles, this Gabby story immediately was introduced to me as domestic violence and toxic relationships. I won't get into a lot of specific points about this, but from the body cam footage, a lot of classic signs of toxic abusive relationships are seen, such as Gabby being seen as very out of control and Brian subsequently joking and remaining very calm with police. Yeah, we saw that. He was like fist bumping with the police officers. It's disgusting. Mm. Um, Mm. As for Andrew's point about breakup and murder, if we follow patterns of abusive relationships, Brian wouldn't have wanted a breakup and neither would Gabby. They were high school sweethearts. And so what likely happened is Gabby started trying to grow in ways that were threatening to Brian. He would have tried to keep her where she was. And when that didn't work, things could have escalated to murder. But oftentimes in domestic violence and toxic relationship, the act is about control and is and the exact opposite of wanting to break up. Not saying this is for sure what happened or anything, but this is a pretty classic pattern. It's upsetting. And we do know a lot about these patterns that could save lives if if systems and power structures weren't so misogynistic and fucked up. Yeah. Thank you Great for that, point. Sarah. Yeah. And we did get a bunch of feedback about our coverage of this. Um, some people wished we took it in a different angle, but I think we can reiterate, and we did mention this on on air, um, the fact that Gabby is a young, pretty white girl is the reason why this got so much attention. And there are many, many people out there who go missing every day and their stories don't get covered. And part of the reason why is because they're a person of color and that's going to be less sexy for the news to keep an eye on. And it sucks. Yeah. And to um, the Petito family's credit, they started a foundation in Gabby's memory to help 
other people who are missing and exploited because her father even stood up at a press conference and was like, hey, there are a lot of people who are missing right now who don't get an ounce of the attention that Gabby has gotten, and they all deserve to get as much attention as she has gotten. So kudos to the Petito family. I mean, that's that's an amazing thing, especially for um, people going through what I have to imagine is insurmountable grief. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Sarah. All right. Well, let's talk SCOTUS. Yeah. So uh, over the course of the last few months, we've talked about um, how abortion would be on the docket for this SCOTUS term. So I thought we could revisit that. But we also want to talk about a couple of other um, things the Supreme Court will be hearing this fall. Um, I did want to plug Tom Goldstein, who is the publisher of SCOTUS blog, which is where you can go to read updates and analysis about decisions coming out of the United States Supreme Court. And he recently said, it seems like every few years we say we're going to see radical conservative takeovers of the Supreme Court in American law. Um, and then he added, we really mean it this time. Um he also goes on to say that the court now has six really solid conservative members and it has decided um, to put a lot of massive social issues front and center that it has ducked in the past because it couldn't get five because it couldn't get five solid conservative votes to change the law. However, now they do have those votes. So there are a number of things on the docket this fall. We don't have enough time in the episode today to cover them, but we thought we would cover the things that would jump out as sort of the most immediately interesting to our audience. The first one being abortion rights. So recently we talked about the um, Texas law that the Supreme Court failed to strike down which allows for anyone who performs or aids and aids and abets an abortion performed after six weeks to be sued. Um, the court mm-hmm. is going to be hearing arguments this December about a Mississippi law that bans abortions after fi- after 15 weeks. What's disconcerting about this is that this could dismantle Roe v. Wade, which declares that women have the right to terminate a pregnancy before the point of viability or 24 weeks. So if the Supreme Court decides to let this Mississippi law stand, Roe is going to fall. There's no way around that. And ultimately, um, we spoke about this several weeks ago. There are a number of states that have these sort of trigger laws that are in place ready for Roe v. Wade to fall that Mm. will go into effect as soon as Roe v. Wade falls. And if this happens, it will ultimately be up to states to decide the fate of abortion rights on a state-by-state level. So we would see some states uphold that right and other states not. Um, And of it's been a of course, pretty big topic lately. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, and of course, after what happened in Texas, when the Supreme Court just decided to stand by, it's a scary warning about what they can do when it comes to overturning Roe v. Wade. Absolutely. And honestly, the Texas situation really shows that John Roberts has lost control of his court. Um, He's the chief justice. And although he leans more conservative, he has historically um, stood in the corner of maintaining abortion rights in this country. And he is the only conservative who sided with the three liberal justices to try and block the Texas law. But unfortunately, they were outnumbered by the five other conservatives on the court. Um, So I will not be surprised at all if that's the split that we see on this Mississippi law, a 5-4, with um, John Roberts siding with the liberals. Mm -hmm. Um, But we also won't hear about the outcome of um, those hearings until early early to mid-2022. I just think that it's all really terrifying, and it really just solidifies what we were saying during the course of all of our election coverage, which is that, you know, your vote for presidency 
doesn't just dictate who's sitting at the top in the government. It literally dictates everything. And all these Supreme Court justices are there for life. So it's literally going to be a lifetime before there's even the possibility that this might be able to be reversed. So the lasting damage, the potential for lasting damage here is uh, absolutely terrifying. Yeah. And I think, you know, the public's attention span is very short. So I think sometimes for people, the thought that somebody who can be in office for a minimum of four years, having the ability to make a lifetime appointment to the highest court in the land, like doesn't really compute for people. Um, so mm-hmm. it does make me really angry when I think of all the protest votes and all of the instances of people sitting out in 2016, um, because people can be happy that we got rid of Trump. But I know this is something we've talked about on this show before when he got voted out last fall. Trump may be gone, but Trumpism has not gone anywhere. And we see it in the fact that he was able to appoint three Supreme Court justices. In four years. In four yeah. years. I know. Something Hillary called out, by the way, in that Before election, she, was, she said yeah. the next president will likely be able to appoint three Supreme Court justices. Well, And by the way, isn't one of the justices right now considering stepping down? I'm forgetting the, his name. But dude, did you see what happened? And he's on the left. Leave. What are you waiting for? Go now. Mm-hmm. Didn't you see what happened with Obama and Trump? Ugh. Something else that will be on the docket, the court is going to be hearing arguments in a case brought by gun owners against a New York law that requires a special license to be able to carry a gun outside of the home. This is like a 108-year-old law in New York that prevents you from just being able to carry a weapon around willy-nilly without a special license for it. Um, if you had asked me about this based on sort of like an Obama era Supreme Court, I I don't know if I would have been as worried as I am now, uh, especially knowing that um, Kavanaugh and Coney Barrett have both expressed pretty pro-gun and pro-Second Amendment uh, opinions in their um, dissents and uh, votes in the past. So this is also disconcerting. I hate to be the bearer of bad news. Yeah. So in other words, if the court sides in favor of these gun owners, we could potentially see a country where we're all just people are just allowed to walk around with guns openly. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, Supreme Court decisions set precedents that have mm-hmm. major trickle down <laughs> effects for right. the rest of the country um which is why you know for example we're talking about the Mississippi abortion law that has the potential to impact Roe v Wade which is you know federal um so yeah. it it has the potential to give states the ability to say uh no Roe v Wade here yeah by the way, the justice I was trying to think of earlier is Breyer. Breyer. Mm-hmm. In interviews recently, he's been like, oh, maybe I'll leave soon. Maybe I won't. Dude, leave. I decided for you. Bye. I know. Yeah. Well, and the it's been really interesting because SCOTUS judges have been uniquely vocal lately in the media. I don't know if y'all have followed any of this. Yeah. And it makes me uncomfortable. It makes I don't me like uncomfortable that they write books. Too. I don't like that they talk in interviews. Just. Don't 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 appear. Yeah, you're not supposed to be partisan. Um, mm-hmm. you know, even though we know that you have affiliations, um, you shouldn't be speaking at partisan events, which is something that Amy Coney Barrett did recently. And Sotomayor released a book, I think, in the past couple she of years. Did. Obviously, RBG was out there too. Mm-hmm. You know, so I can't speak to how partisan these books and appearances are in their cases, but yeah, I don't care which justice does it. It, it makes me uncomfortable seeing them out there. Yeah, I mean, it should, quite frankly. They're supposed to be impartial. Supposed to be anyway. Um, something else the court will be hearing is a case from Maine families who want to use a state tuition program to send their kids to religious schools. Um, the reasoning behind this is that Maine 
has uh, is broken up into a number of districts, many of which do not have their own public schools. So the state provides tuition to allow parents to either transport their children to a private school or transport them to another public school. Um, however, there are some families that want to be able to use that money to send their kids to religious schools, which is um, that whole separation of church and state thing should make everyone pretty uncomfortable. The idea of state and federal dollars being used to pay for a religious-based curriculum. If you would like your child to go to a religious school, that is fine, but the government shouldn't be paying for that. Mm-hmm. I think you hit the nail on the head. <laughs> Separation of church and state, period. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something else that we might see, and this is kind of, it's a little bit obscure, and it's something that um, I did some reading on and was trying to wrap my brain around, um, but there may be some implications um, for regulations that federal agencies are able to make. Um, so the Supreme Court has been flooded with briefs over the last month or so asking justices to overrule a precedent that prevents judges from sabotaging federal agencies. Think of the EPA, for example, the Environmental Protection Agency. Um, And this was actually a really good summary of this that I found um, in an article from Vox, which we can link in the show notes. Um, It says, historically, the Supreme Court warned judges to be very reluctant to second-guess federal agencies when they issue such regulations. Because specialized agencies have far more policy expertise than judges. What's more, federal agencies are accountable to an elected president, while federal judges are unelected and lack the democratic legitimacy that comes from an electoral mandate, a.k.a. judges are not elected by the people, so they shouldn't be able to dictate what regulations federal agencies can put into place because those federal agencies, by proxy of the the president being elected by the people, have more of a mandate than the judges would. Um, So an example of this that I read about is like, if the EPA wanted to put um, some kind of carbon tax or carbon emissions limits into effect, if the Supreme Court changed this precedent, they could theoretically strike that regulation down in order to prevent what they might consider to be federal overreach. Um, But something like that could very easily have a negative impact on, say, President Biden's agenda for his presidency. And then something, speaking of Sonia Sotomayor, Andrew mentioned her earlier, she said about this particular term 2021, there is going to be a lot of disappointment in the law, a huge amount. Happy new term. And see, this is what I really want to drive home for people, because I think there can be some misplaced optimism in the idea that, oh, we have, you know, Biden now, whether you like Biden or not. Um, If you're listening to this podcast, you were probably happy that Biden was elected and Trump was not reelected. But just because Biden got elected, a lot of these issues don't magically go away. And the Trump administration in particular was able to stack the judiciary, not just at the Supreme Court level, um, but they were able to appoint, um, I think, the most judges of an administration in recent history And that's going to have trickle-down effects for many, many years to come. So we just have to use this information and harness the energy it gives you, the anger it gives you, the frustration it gives you to make us not be complacent again and not let this happen again. I think you're right. I read that too about Trump setting a record in terms of judge appointments. Hopefully Biden, the Biden administration is trying to do that as well to kind of clap back at all the appointments that Trump was making. But yeah, 
it's it's all very scary. And thank God uh, Trump only got four years because you can only imagine with all this in mind, if he had another four years of potential justice, Supreme Court justice picks of, of federal judge picks. And of course, everything else he was able to do, he would have right. been able to do. So well, we'll definitely keep an eye on this. Like I said a little bit earlier, we won't know the results of these cases until 2022. But it's just something we wanted to make sure people had on the docket, particularly with the Mississippi abortion case. I know we've been talking about that since like June. Um, so just really wanted to remind people that that is something that your Supreme Court is about to hear your Supreme Court and it's a six to three for you conservative majority (laughs) leave Breyer if there's one like little positive spin we can put on this I think I noted this a couple months ago too. the Supreme Court with Trump's picks have acted in ways we were not expecting true that actually did end up favoring the left so I'm not saying to not worry about all these cases because they're definitely things to be worried about but there might be a surprise or two. Maybe, maybe. Perhaps. I'm just saying, to help you sleep a little easier tonight. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, we're we're not trying to be alarmist, but at the same time, yeah. I think the Supreme Court is not something that most people follow terribly well. I know I did not used to. Um, so sometimes what can happen is these decisions can come down from the Supreme Court the following year, and you're like, wait, when the fuck did that happen? It's like, right. oh, it, it's been a while, actually. We just didn't know about it until now. Yeah. So just wanted to make a quick plug for After Dark. We actually don't have any sponsors today. So uh, we wanted to spend a moment talking about our Patreon coming up in After Dark. We are going to talk about Friendship Red Flags which should be a fun discussion to be had. So stay tuned for that. That'll be available at patreon.com slash millennial. You get After Dark every week. We record a bonus episode every week. And actually, we attach that to the main show and we release that on our Patreon. You get a special RSS feed that you can pop into most podcasting apps and you can listen to what we call Mega Millennial uh, very easily in your favorite podcast app, just like you do all the other podcasts that you love. So go to patreon.com slash millennial to support us. We really appreciate your support. Thanks to you. This podcast has been a success. We really could not do it without you. And actually, just even over the past year alone, we've seen a lot of growth in terms of our patrons. And now we're trying to use that funding to grow the show in various ways. Um, I think we're even going to hopefully it's not inappropriate for me to mention this. We're going to get Pam on some new work within Millennial, too. Now that she's a little less busy (laughs) now that I shut down Hypeable from one (laughs) one project to another. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I only bring that up to say we use your support to to spend more time on the show and try to grow it. So thanks, everybody, for your support. We really couldn't do it without you. So, Pam, let's talk about you're you're a fan of Big Brother, right? And you noticed something interesting you wanted to talk about. Yeah, So I'm a fickle Big Brother fan. Some people watch religiously every year. They use Big Brother to kind of mark the season because it happens almost every summer. I sort of just tune in whenever I feel like, you know, that particular batch of contestants is very interesting, which is why I found myself glued to the screen this season for Big Brother uh, when they actually ended up crowning the first Black winner. So Xavier won the season, spoilers, Um, although I don't think I think like if you're invested, then you already know this. And it kind of seems like it wouldn't be a big deal, except for the fact that Big Brother has been on the air since the year 2000. And it's taken this long for them to crown uh, any black contestant a winner. And this is actually all due in part to this insane alliance known as the cookout. Uh, Some of you might have seen the cookout trending on Twitter. Uh, It was also historic in its own right. It was an alliance made up of the six black contestants that came into the house. And they all decided that they were going to try and get to the final six together. And then later on, it sort of kind of forged into this bigger than one person mission to crown a first Black winner, whoever that may be. So um, it was very noble. 
And it was kind of crazy to watch this all play out. I think the reason that a lot of people end up tuning into Big Brother every year is because they like the strategy and the psychological aspect of the show. Um, because for those of you that don't know, it's just 16, I believe it's 16 contestants in a house and they have no contact with the outside outside world. They're just all like living together and every week somebody gets evicted and it's like part summer camp with the competition series and things like that. Um, but the Cookout Alliance was kind of big because it usually alliances that are that big on the show don't last very long. So the fact that they were able to all make it to the final six is a big deal. And um, I wanted to talk a little bit about what they did to do this. Um, so basically, each of the six members um, created an alliance with a member outside of the cookout. And that person was their closest alliance outside of the group. But then anytime an HOH happened, where like the person with the power was part of the cookout, they would put up the pair and then vote out the spare, basically. And they knew that the person that was going up as a pawn as part of their alliance was not going to get voted out because they had the numbers to keep them with the other you know, votes in place. Um, so there was a lot of trust that was put into each other here. A lot of times, like, you just kind of could tell that they did not get along. So the fact that nobody really um, made an effort to uh, stray from the plans, except for one tiny little incident is kind of huge. That is basically the background for that. But the reason that this year's cast was so diverse is because in the wake of the Black Lives Matter movement that took place in 2020, CBS announced that they were actually going to commit to make sure its reality shows were more diverse. So as part of this new decree, CBS promised that the cast for its unscripted series would be comprised of at least 50% um, BIPOC contestants beginning in 2021-2022. So the only reason that there were six Black contestants in the house to begin with this season is because of this new rule that they instated as part of a company-wide effort to be more diverse. Uh, Big Brother also has had like a huge string of racist problems. Uh, they've frequently been called out for, you know, the contestants being racist. A lot of times it's not really edited to reflect that for what you see on television. But because the house gets are in there and they're locked in there 24-7, people pay for the live feeds. Um, and so even when it doesn't make the final cut, like now with the internet, you see all these clips pop up more and more of these contestants saying awful, nasty things mm -hmm. to uh, POC contestants. And I know that Andrew put in a couple more instances because it's not really like exclusive to Big Brother. Yeah. Like racism runs rampant in unscripted series. All yeah, the time. yeah. It's, it's something you can't help but notice. I was just looking at a couple of pieces on the issue. Um, the Real Housewives franchise and Survivor have been accused of stereotyping based on gender. The Bachelorette didn't have its first lead of color until 2017. The Bachelor, the show Bachelorette was based on, didn't have its first black lead until 2020, at which point it had 24 seasons under its belt. Um, and also from 2002 to 2016, black contestants on The Bachelor never made it past the fifth week. Both of the seasons of The Bachelor and The Bachelorette that you uh, referenced with the first um, Black leads, they also took a hit in the viewership ratings, which is kind of That's crazy. Sad. Yeah. Um, I can't recall exact numbers, but I know for The Bachelorette specifically, it dipped about a million, which is not a huge it's not like a very big dip because it's still performed very well for ABC. But the fact that people chose not to watch yeah is kind of crazy yeah and for what it's still the same program and our social media manager jewel just added this note the winner of the black bachelor season was accused of racism i don't watch big brother pat does um like you mentioned pam he's a big fan because it does kind of represent summer it's his summer show and i know he was really impressed by the the cookout as well and it's pretty awesome that they were able to pull this off in the first season wherein CBS is trying to institute more diverse casts. Cool way to kick things off. 
I know Laura mentioned in planning as well that she doesn't watch, but she used to. Yeah. Um, what was it about the show that made it so compelling to tune in when you were watching, you know, every year? So I, I really only watched one or two years when I was in college. And the reason for that was it was kind of an event with my friends, like a couple of my friends were really into it. And it was kind of like, a, hey, let's get together and watch this shit show unfold and drink some beer and like order some pizza. And so we would just have a really good time trolling the show. <laughs> and the people who are quite frankly being super shitty to each other. Um, but I do remember, it, and maybe it, it wasn't consciously you know, sort of obvious to me at the time, but I remember how white everyone was. Like, I remember little to no diversity. And this was in 2006, 2007, somewhere in there. Um, So to see how far this has come is really impressive. And to see the strategy that the cookout (laughs) had at play was really smart, actually, because it's you know, I, I don't think it's any different than any other strategy that a group would come up with to try and ensure that, you know, someone from their, you know, if you want to call it pot or whatever would win. Yeah, it's um, it's funny you mentioned like the earlier seasons because it's absolutely terrible when you take a look at past casts like you can just tell that they were like well gotta get our token black yep. person in there like gotta get the old guy gotta get the gay person it's just it was so methodical, but the majority of contestants were just super attractive cis white people. Um, and I know that, you know, some terrible people have also been claiming reverse racism, which is such a joke for this season. Oh, boy. Because and then you can't even like do that because, you know, there have been so many seasons where. Um, you know, POC have been booted off the show right away. They're sometimes the first to go. Yeah. Uh, season 21, if you want to read up on some um, awful Big Brother history, was just insane. And the way that those POC consistents were treated was just awful. And Sarah, I know, had made a point to bring up, I think it was season 16 or 15, which I don't think I watched. Um, but apparently it got really bad. Uh, during that year as well. So all I got to say about it is the point of the show is to implement a strategy that will allow you <laughs> to get as close to the end as possible. And this crew found a way to do that and sort of turn the the usual narrative of Big Brother on its head, right? So get the fuck over it if you want to claim reverse racism (laughs) yeah i think the big question here is whether we think that this is going to you know uh, incite any long-lasting sort of change uh i feel like it remains to be seen um but i but i hope that my personal hope is that cbs still sticks to their um, unscripted casting rule because that's the least that they can do. Um, and that's not even considering like, I don't know of any new implementations they've put in place for diversifying their crew, but that's also a big one as well. Yeah, definitely. I do have one complaint, actually two about Big Brother. I'll just mention quickly. The announcer. Big Brother! Oh, it's yeah. like so annoying and extra. Like, what are you doing? Oh, my ears bleed every time. Also, <laughs> uh, Julie Chen Moonves. She, uh, oh, Julie yes. Chen. Ever since her husband, the head of CP- CBS, got me too to out of CBS, she started saying, I'm Julie Chen Moonves. Yes. Julie, do you have to remind us that you're associated with a guy who was a sexual predator at CBS, allegedly? I get it. You're sticking with your husband, but do you have to remind us every week? I'm Julie Chen Moonbez. I remember that when he, he got ousted, like they announced that he was no longer part of the company. And then that night, Big Brother was airing. And she said, and I'm Julie Chen Moonbez. And I was watching with some friends and we all just like collectively gasped. <laughs> yes, Because we could you. not believe yeah. that she said that and that the network let her say it. Yeah. And like, okay. W- once or twice do it, 
but we're three years out now and she's still I'm Julie Chen Moonves. It's like yes. the moment she drops it, everybody's going to assume there's a problem in their relationship or they're divorcing, you know? And also, like, my big beef with Julie is that she so very uh, often does not uh, ask uh, enough hard hitting questions. Oh, yeah. Or like the producers don't let her, you know, talk uh. explicitly about things that are going on. She was very rightly so criticized for not asking more outgoing contestants about the cookout and how they felt about that. Oh, I mean, yeah. I feel like that's kind of like what what can you say if you don't want to be an asshole? Yeah. But at the same time. It, they should have let her talk about it more. Yeah. You know, because they're clearly taking the credit for it being a historic season. So, yeah. Yeah. Own it. I get maybe they're afraid the contestants are going to screw up and say something racist. Very possible. I'm Julie Chen Moonves on Big Brother. Well, maybe that could be your backup plan. You can take that guy's job <laughs> now that Ooh, I'm that's a good idea. Hi, everyone. This is Big Brother. I'll just go like, you know, a couple keys lower. Big brother. This is big brother. Welcome to big. Almost did what they do. This is big brother. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to big brother. That's say, say previously what? on big brother. Previously with... on big. Hold on. Let me work on something a little more creative. <laughs> previously on big brother. Previously on big brother. <laughs> I like the emphasis on you're halfway to in a world. <laughs> I know, I know. None of these are are good, but I know that guy is really not. Good. Or you could make it like really understated, like like an HBO show or something. Like previously yeah. on Big Brother, <laughs> this is super serious for Big Brother. I love it. All right, well, Big Brother actually airs on Sunday nights when it's in season. And I wanted to revisit our Sunday Scaries mini chat that we had the other day because I thought we could try to help people combat the Sunday Scaries. I'm not saying we have the solutions ourselves, but maybe we can give people some tips to make their Sundays and their weekends a little bit better. So last week I plugged Spotify and Headspace's Sunday Scary podcast, and I continue to recommend that. That's worth checking out. Um, Just as a reminder... The Sunday scaries are when the weekend is drawing to a close and you're dreading the work week ahead. The fun of the weekend is over. It's back to the real world. I wanted to ask you two, what specific types of tasks or interactions are we dreading? Is that what gets us during the Sunday scaries or is it just like the broader work week? If I know there's a particular uh, piece of work that I'm not looking forward to doing, during the week, I know that I'm going to like on Monday, I'll dread it. Even if I don't have to do it Monday, I'll just dread it until it gets done. How about you, Pam? What scares you? This is like an ongoing problem uh, that I'm trying to work on, but it's very, and I'm going to talk about this too later, because even though it's my recommendation, I also struggle with it. Um, It's having to veer off from like a, a, like a to-do list. Like if my day is really packed, I just like dread the possibility of something getting thrown into the wrench and then completely derailing and then having to reprioritize everything, which is really dumb because in the world of news, like, you it's know, always unexpected. stuff comes up all the yeah. time. And and I don't even think about it when it's happening. Like nothing bad ever happens. I just re uh, wire and you know deal with things as they come through but just like the idea of having to do that is really stressful and frazzling yeah for me and using podcast editing as an example it's the repetitiveness of the work week that kind of stresses me out because it's like oh it's sunday so that means i have to do this tomorrow honestly like and i've thought of bringing this up to you two and now we can just make it an on-air meeting i kind of want to move millennial to tuesdays because it's kind of overwhelming to have to prep for millennial coming up on on tuesdays maybe I don't know why we moved it if we did, but I think they've pretty much always been Mondays. Huh? Okay. I'm not saying we need to make any decisions right now, but it's like it. I sometimes I think like, wow, Mondays would be a lot less stressful if I knew I wouldn't have to get back into working and do millennial at the end of the day. Honestly, you got to prep for the show. I'm not against it because this is something that happens to me sometimes on Mondays. Like, for instance, this past week of me being on vacation, 
you know, we discussed planning at the end of last week, but of course I was on vacation. So I had my story, but it wasn't totally fleshed out. So I kind of had to get some of it in, you know, a little bit earlier today. And then it was like, oh, but I'm working. But oh, then I got to like prepare for the show. So it can make Mondays feel cramped. So, mm-hmm. you know, if if this is a thing that y'all aren't, you know, adverse to, I'd be open to it. <laughs> Kim, how do you feel? I mean, <laughs> from a personal <laughs> standpoint, I would selfishly love it because um, oh. I have therapy on Mondays, too. And oh. having to go from oh, like snap therapy to work to the podcast is a lot. And this is why I'm convinced that we used to record on Tuesdays, because I don't think I would have like. <laughs> scheduled my therapy appointments for Mondays willingly. Yeah. My therapist like can't switch them unless, you know, somebody else wants to trade and nobody has taken me up on my offer to trade. Oh, wow. Man. So, that well, sucks. listeners. So I had one time busy day. legit Pam mm-hmm. where I had a therapy session on a Monday. I usually don't schedule them for days we do the show. But I was so fucking tired that day because I was like, oh, Mm -hmm. I was crying for an hour this afternoon. And now I have to be happy on the show. Yeah. Yes. That that sucks. Well, (laughs) listeners, you heard it here first. We're probably moving to Tuesdays because we all don't like Monday, evidently. Mental health, at least. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad I brought that up. Um, But yeah, so it's just like, again, for me, the repetitiveness of of the work week can kind of bore me and stress me out because I'm like, I know I'm going to have to do all this and it can be a little slow and lame. So that's what stresses me out. And then also just like knowing that a whole week of work is ahead. You got five days to go again until Friday. And similarly, and I think maybe, Laura, you mentioned this last week, Katie just said in our Discord I feel the need to be prepped physically. So, yep. oh, wait, no, that's not the one I wanted to read. But yeah, that's a good point, too. Uh, <laughs> she also said um, the idea of needing to be ready for the entire work week before it actually occurs. For example, I'll sometimes work on something on Sunday because I'm so worried about needing to work on it on a Monday. Yeah, I yeah. try to sometimes get ahead, too, on the weekend. Um, I do feel a little more at peace on weekend mornings. So I'll kind of sit in the kitchen and kind of do a couple things just to get ahead of the next week. But turning to what recommendations we could make to people to actually help with the Sunday scaries, I have found, and I don't care what night it is, sometimes you'll be thinking about the next work day and you're going to be, you're stressed out about it. And I'm like, oh crap, I'm going to have to do this and that and this and that and this and that. I have found that I've, if I just write the tasks down. I kind of take them out of my brain and I know, okay, so that task is for tomorrow. I'm writing it down and I know I have to take care of it tomorrow. Then suddenly I really am less stressed about it because I don't need to worry if I'm going to remember to do it or not. I just write it down and then I can work it into the next day. So my recommendation to help combat the scary Sunday scaries is jot things down that are stressing you out. Then you know they'll be waiting for you the next day, but you don't have to worry about forgetting them. And of course, you can also plan your week ahead that way. You can be like, well, I'll do this Tuesday and I'll do that Thursday. You know, for me, it's about scheduling. That's what that's what helps. Something that I try to do and I'm not always successful at, but I am trying to be better is don't leave sort of like life tasks like errands, chores, etc. All of those things that you probably use some of your weekend to get accomplished, don't leave those for Sunday night because that personally just makes me feel even more stressed out if I'm like, oh my God, I have to do all my laundry and it's like already 8 p.m. on Sunday when you should be just relaxing and unwinding for the night to help prepare yourself for the week ahead. Um, This was something that we, we kind of decided when we were coming back from vacation, you know, it it was very tempting to stay at the beach for as long as possible. But we were like, no, we should probably leave in the morning so we can be home on Sunday early enough in the day that we can get stuff done and not feel like we have to, you know, mortgage our Sunday night to pay for the tasks that we didn't get done 
earlier in the day. Um, so that makes yep. a big difference. And we were able to sit around and drink wine and watch TV and just unwind and chill on Sunday. And it really made a difference for me today, honestly. I love that one. How about you, Pam? Um, similar to you, I really find paper planning to be helpful in terms of like a visual aid, but also it's just very therapeutic for me. Like I'll usually sit with a cup of coffee on the kitchen island Sunday morning and just like go through my planner and, you know, write things down if I want to make it pretty, you know, that's like bonus art therapy. So that's <laughs> fine. Um, I'm not like a crazy uh, planner lady, but I know a lot of people are. But, you know, there are ways to get creative and stuff like that. And sometimes that helps. Um, and then also just like figuring out a prioritizing method that works for you. This is something that I'm actively working on. Um, and and just like giving yourself leeway or, or creating your to do list in a way that allows for some wiggle room so that you'll know, you know, if I don't get to these tasks, it's not the end of the world. It's not going to make or break me. But I really need to do you know, like these five things today, I find all of that super helpful. And it really just kind of makes me feel less overwhelmed as as Friday inches closer. Yeah. To know that I've prioritized my week that way. Yeah. If people are trying to get organized with some sort of digital app, like the Reminders app on their phone, for example, and you haven't tried a physical planner before, please give those a try. Pam mentioned it feels therapeutic. It feels so good to write it down and cross it out. I love crossing it out. Yes. I do it as slow as possible so I can just really Is enjoy the moment. Is that a knock-knock pad I see? Yeah, yeah. And I, I rec- love knock-knock pads. I recommended yeah. these on the show before. They have all different types. My favorite, far and away, is this one that says this week. And it has six boxes, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then next week. And... You know, I don't know if they did this on purpose, but uh, one of the now former hypable writers, Karen, uh, once mentioned that I think in a Try Guys video, they said, like, you you're only capable of doing like six things in a day and each day and in this pad just has seven lines to fill in. So I was like, oh, okay. so maybe like once I fill up a box like that's it, (laughs) like obviously some of these will take hours. And before you know it, your whole day is is done. But I like that there's only seven lines per day. I think that also helps manage your workload for any particular day getting too overwhelming. But yeah, the knock knock pads, they rock rock. I like that one. And then for like a more abstract, less rigid version, if that is more your speed there, they make one called I think it's just called my agenda or something. And then it has three boxes. So it's an AM and a PM column. And then at the bottom, there's a hidden agenda. So I just kind of use that to write down things that like I might like to do throughout the day. But if I don't have time to do them, then it's not going to, you know, stress me out. And you can use that to do like little reminders to yourself too, like make sure you get in a workout or like drink yeah. more water, things like that. I, um, so I really like that one as well. I need to find that one you're talking about. I have this little one, today's plan of attack. It doesn't say Ooh, that's cute. p.m. though. Yeah, I don't really use this one. though. <laughs> I like the idea of morning afternoon, though, because like yeah. I kind of do see my work day is two separate parts of the day, you know, before lunch, after lunch. Mm-hmm. So I might have to look for that one. And it's a good point, too, about writing things down because there is so much research that shows that things just resonate and stick better with us as humans if we write them down. Yeah, there's a very good reason that you feel that enjoyment when you're crossing an item off your list or that it's easier to remember and keep track of all the things that you wrote down. And it's because you wrote them down. There's something about that act that cements it in your brain same way as you know studying or trying to learn something new yeah Yeah. and i'll also recommend like if anybody's looking for a good planner my go-to every year is the Erin condren life planner i like the the vertical weekly layout because that just works better for me but they have just like traditional ones too it's a little bit pricey though so if you're not ready to drop you know that much money on a planner totally understandable michaels sells a line of planners uh, called Recollections, I believe. And it's basically a knockoff Aaron Condren planner. And Michael's always has coupons too. So you can get them for pretty cheap, like 20 or under. 
And doesn't Erin Condren do a Black Friday sale? I got they one do. from them a couple years ago on your recommendation, yes. Pam, and I loved that thing. I probably just yeah. need to get another one for next year. It's really nice. Like the paper quality is fantastic. They have really cute covers. So if you're like really committed and you feel like it's going to help you, uh, like Laura said, they always do like, I think it's like 30% off or 25% off Black Friday. Mm-hmm. So keep that on your radar. Well, listeners, if you have any suggestions on how to combat Sunday scaries, please write in. Let us know. We would love to get your tips and be ready to enter the work week uh, feeling better. You can email millennialshow at gmail.com or you can use the contact form on millennialshow.com. You can also hit us up on social media. We're a millennial show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. We love hearing from you. So thanks in advance for sending in any feedback about the Sunday scaries or anything we've spoken about today. I already mentioned what's coming up in After Dark. So let's jump into recommendations. So this is one of those pre-recommendations that I like to do from time to time. The new James Bond movie, No Time to Die, is finally, finally being released. It was supposed to come out last year and then the pandemic pushed it back a couple times. I got my tickets. I am seeing it Thursday night. I'm going to the theater. I can't. I need to see it on the big screen. James Bond review because I'm going to go too. Oh, yeah. Let's do it. Let's talk. (laughs) I freaking love this title. No time to die. (laughs) Of course, um, this is Daniel Craig's last Bond movie. It's also nearly three hours. I'm we're seeing it after MuggleCast. So I'm going to be like falling asleep by the end of it. But I look forward to seeing Daniel Craig's farewell in related recommendation. Check out all of Daniel Craig's James Bond movies, except for Quantum of Solace. That one was horrible. But the the other ones are really, really good, particularly Skyfall and um, Casino Royale. Well, Sunday scaries are no good. But if you're into spook season and you want some October scaries, I recommend the show Midnight Mass on Netflix. We've been watching it the last couple of nights and it is so good. It's by the same creator of Haunting of Hill House and Haunting of Blind Manor. And it's just one beautifully shot and a really nice slow burn. Um, sometimes it can be really hard to find horror movies and TV shows that don't feel cheap and like they're just riddled with jump scares. This is such a good story on top of the fact that it's real fucking creepy. (laughs) And I'll just reiterate my recommendation for getting a good planner. Um, specifically I would recommend the Aaron Condren planner or checking out the recollections line on Michael at Michael's. Cool. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, if you enjoy the show in general, we would appreciate if you left a review in your favorite podcast app if they allow them. Also, once again, if you have any feedback about today's episode, you can email millennialshow at gmail.com or by using the contact form or anonymous confessional on millennialshow.com. And finally, we got those social media accounts, Millennial Show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Laura. And I'm Pamela. Bye.